I want to thank the IGEC for providing me with the opportunity to share some thoughts on the topic independence and dependence in dementia and community resources. In the United States, cognitively intact adults are generally assumed to have the right to make decisions for themselves. Similarly, there's agreement that severely cognitively impaired persons are unable to provide informed consent or make reasoned choices. So although there's broad consensus regarding persons who sit on either end of the spectrum, persons with dementia often have borderline or fluctuating functional and decisional capacity, especially earlier on in the demanding process. And it's this gray area that I'd like to explore with you. A large body of research on medical decision-making capacity advises clinicians to not conceptualize capacity as all or nothing, but rather in the context of one medical decision or an event, such as to have surgery or to discontinue a treatment. There are varying thresholds for capacity. More complex and risky decisions are held to higher standards, sort of a sliding scale. In the outpatient setting, Questions about capacity are often about control over everyday things, the car, the checkbook, the need for assistance to make it safely through the day. These are not medical issues per se, but they are issues primary care providers and health and human services professionals repeatedly find themselves dealing with for persons with dementia. Bridge. You know, everyone generally has the goal of doing what is best for the patient. What is hard is seeing how to get there. These are the objectives I'd like to cover in this talk. First is to explore safety and quality of life concerns for persons with dementing illnesses. I'd like to discuss the roles and perspectives of family members, the caregivers, the clinicians as they confront safety and quality of life concerns. I'd like to review how clinicians can assist patients and caregivers with the challenging decisions they face. And finally, identifying community resources to assist in caring for persons with dementing illnesses. So the big picture, there are many contextual forces at work related to dementia care. The societal burden, the lack of a cure, the approach to care, bioethical constructs that underlie the challenges of balancing dependence and independence in dementia care, and quality of life. So the social context. We've seen the numbers before. There is a huge individual and societal burden of Alzheimer's dementia and related dementias. Over 5 million Americans have the diagnoses. 16 million are expected to have it by 2050. Today in Iowa, over 69,000 Iowans, 65 years and older, have been diagnosed with dementia. The cost of formal care nationwide is approximately $200 billion the past year. However, most care is provided by unpaid family members. Caregivers report very high levels of stress, depression, chronic illness, higher than non-caregiving counterparts, and they may neglect their own health. There are many issues of loss related to caregiving and dementia, often called ambiguous loss. Becoming a caregiver means that someone in their lives is no longer able to function in the way they did before. And no matter how great a job they do as a caregiver, their loved one will only get better. We see in our clinic the distress patients feel 
the medical context. Alzheimer's disease and related disorders are incurable and insidious conditions. They're chronic, debilitating. They require interventions outside the traditional preventative and curative focus of medicine. Recent studies indicate changes are occurring in the brain before outward signs of dementia are evident. Although the onset of dementia can be subtle, affected persons have progressive decline over the years and dementia medications provide at best very limited benefits. Healthcare decision-making is becoming ever more complex due in part to advances in medicine and health technologies. Because of this heightened complexity, family caregivers or surrogate decision-makers may need to be called upon earlier in the demanding process than previously. Most patients with dementia are cared for in primary care settings. There are not enough geriatricians to go around. This leads us a bit into a discussion of what I call the outpatient care triad. Providing care in this setting is a little different. It can take us out of our clinical comfort zone. The patient may have variable degrees of insight into their condition and different responses to it. Personality and behavioral changes often accompany cognitive decline, and the person we worked with previously may be changing, and we have to acknowledge that loss of that person as caregivers ourselves. There's a language of dementia care. Who we used to refer to as a spouse or the adult child is gradually referred to as a caregiver. We've already mentioned a bit about the impact of stress on these caregivers. Provider's first duty is to the patient, but that relationship between patient and provider gradually changes. Caregivers are included in more discussions that once were confidential between patient and professional. And that balance between patient autonomy and beneficence begins to shift. This AMA statement sums up the importance of family caregivers at dementia care very well. Because family members provide the majority of care for persons with dementia, they are an essential resource for the patient and the healthcare system. Understanding and attention to family caregiver needs and challenges are therefore essential aspects of caring for the person with dementia. Dementia care deals with questions of capacity and balancing rights and obligations of several parties. These are fundamentally ethical problems, so I'd like to briefly review four key principles of biomedical ethics in light of their relevance to dementia care. Those principles are respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Often understood as the patient's right to self-determination and freedom from coercion, respect for autonomy grows out of the moral principle that there is dignity and value inherent in all persons. In the United States, respect for autonomy is understood as a fundamental right. In medical decision-making, patient autonomy typically trumps other ethical constructs. Legal tools such as healthcare proxies have been designed to promote prospective autonomy. Key to our discussion today are the gray areas of decision-making capacity and related functional capacity to do things such as drive and manage money. In the medical context, beneficence is understood as the obligation to do what is best for a patient, to promote well-being, to treat, to heal. Non-maleficence means to act in ways that avoid doing harm. 
And medicine then includes preventing and reducing injury and pain and limiting risk to the patient. These principles can be thought of as two sides to the same coin, and they often play a larger role in dementia care as patient capacity declines. Justice in the healthcare context is the obligation to treat people in similar situations fairly and impartially. As such, justice is linked to the fair distribution of scarce resources and the equitable sharing of burden. The label of dementia carries some stigma. People fear losing their minds, becoming a vegetable, becoming dependent on others. With such a high value placed on independence and intact cognition, certainly in the United States, Persons with dementia are potentially vulnerable when it comes to prioritizing access to medical and other resources. Because persons with cognitive decline cannot always stand up for themselves, they need their care providers, including clinicians, to advocate on their behalf. Although not an ethical principle per se, quality of life is closely related to them all, particularly related to the exercising of autonomy and the access to and receipt of good care. It is very difficult to define and judge for others. In the US, where independence is held in such high regard, there's a tendency to perceive those with demanding illnesses as experiencing a reduced quality of life. We often hear from family members how he never wanted to end up like this. Anxious children of dementia patients will ask, well, I get this too. Arguably, dignified care and support can provide a high quality of life for persons with dementia. It requires the non-impaired to seek to understand the dementia patient's perspective. Throughout the process of cognitive decline, a focus on maximizing a person's strengths and understanding how they experience stimuli can generate interventions to enhance quality of life. In trying to avoid harm, caregivers may also engage in therapeutic lies to preserve quality of life. And this is perhaps a little more controversial than the other components of quality of life we just discussed. I take, for example, the person who's experienced a loss of a significant loved one, and they do not remember it. One could argue that it's detrimental to that person's quality of life to keep being told about the person's loss and have to relive that loss again and again. We often use therapeutic lies a bit in clinic, I think. For example, take the person who was highly valuing his driving skills. He may not need to be told he can never drive again, but perhaps he can be told he cannot drive until a physician releases him to drive. It all comes down to balance. There are many more than the three challenges in this balancing act that I've identified, and you might pick some very different ones from mine. But as a social worker observing and conducting interviews with patients and families dealing with cognitive decline, I'm struck by how differently the people in the room perceive what is happening to the patient. This may be compounded by variabilities in early dementia and the sometimes conflicting viewpoints patients, caregivers, and clinicians have about safety and risk in patient lives. Quite simply, we don't all see the same person. I'm gonna very briefly summarize this case of an 85-year-old who's brought in by her husband, who's taken over most of the household tasks. She 
did not do well on her cognitive screening. She's not depressed. She makes up excuses for why she's not doing things that she used to do, such as cooking and shopping, but still is saying she's managing her medicines and driving locally. So healthcare providers have very different views of patients brought in for evaluation of memory problems than do family members. They look at the medical evaluation and management. It's objective. They're using evidence-based guidelines. There's usually a structured dementia workup. They manage coexisting conditions. They synthesize patient histories and problem lists, screening tools, lab values, and observe how the patient presents in the clinic at that particular moment. They have often treated previous patients with similar presentations. Their roles in managing disease, maximizing patient function, safety, and comfort. In the case just described, the clinician completed a dementia workup and ultimately gave the patient a diagnosis of early Alzheimer's dementia. He asked the patient and her husband to come back with family members to discuss the diagnosis and its implications. And two of the adult children did show up at the return appointment. Let's think about the caregiver's perspective. Family members see a person with whom they've sh a shared history, all the joys, all the baggage that comes from being related to another human being. They also have competing demands for their attention and for their own needs. We think about that sandwich generation. The clinician may be giving the caregivers a name to their worst fear, that the person they love is becoming demented. And no matter how great a caregiving job they do, their loved one will only get worse. And that's very hard to accept. It's not surprising that caregivers look for providers for cures and for answers, and that their expectations for what can medically be done might be unrealistic. In the case of before, two of the three adult children came to the return appointment. One accepted the diagnosis. The other thought we were the ones that were confused. They had very different relationships with the patient. One was present many times when the patient had challenges with day-to-day -day tasks. The other only saw her mother a couple times a month in good circumstances at church. In terms of expectations, I did also want to share this ad. Consider the promise implicit in this advertisement. We can see maybe where families hold out such high hope and high expectations for medications and for what medicine can do. Think for a minute about the perspective persons with early dementia. They may not understand or they might understand all too well where this diagnosis is leading to. Ideally, persons with early dementia will have insight and have time to get their affairs in order. On the other hand, the lack of patients insight into their decline can be extremely frustrating to caregivers, especially when the patient appears to be the picture of health. One can tell if someone's limping around in a cast, but there's no visible sign of anything wrong, typically in early dementia. Caregivers express frustration at a loved one who's forgotten to pay bills or bought more paper towels than will last a lifetime even though the clinician has likely explained that these functional problems are common in early dementing illness. Tensions escalate. Sometimes harder than the frustration is the paranoia and suspicion that often accompanies early dementia.
Caregivers try to explain their innocence to a loved one and may be devastated at accusations that they're stealing things or having an affair, and the patient remains unconvinced. So frustration is not unique to the caregiver. As we look at the quote, quote, feeling foggy, dizzy, funny in the head, those are common patient complaints, as is defensiveness and fear of becoming dependent. The loss of patient insight into self-awareness may also be interpreted as a blessing. How often do we hear statements such as these in clinic? If he knew he acted this way, he'd never forgive himself. She'd be embarrassed to be seen like this. So individuals develop cognitive and functional impairments sometime before the impairments are recognized or acknowledged. Executive functioning impairments often occur early in the course of dementia. Patients don't really appear impaired, and they do things that lead to financial, social, and other difficulties that have potentially long-term effects. They may change estate plans, mismanage money, fall prey to scams. There might be increased risk-taking and gambling. Often spouses and children don't realize what's happened until there's a substantial financial or legal mess. Although people with dementia lose abilities over time, they often have good days and bad days, good times of the day and bad times of the day. They have idiosyncratic overlearned behaviors and they function better in familiar settings or around certain people. Their physical health, their emotional state and the environment all have an impact on their functioning. When an early stage dementia patient has a series of bad days, Family members may feel a greater urgency to intervene in their loved one's affairs, shut off the stove, hide the car keys. But then things seem to get a little better for a while. Family members question that urgency to intervene and may feel guilty for trying to take over or grow hopeful again that maybe dementia was a misdiagnosis. Maybe the clinician got it wrong and it's nothing but, quote, old age. If persons with borderline capacity are inappropriately assessed as having abilities, such as the ability to drive independently or managing complex financial decisions, things can go very wrong. But on the other hand, persons may lose their sense of value if rights and privileges are prematurely revoked. That sliding scale concept applied to decision-making capacity can be adapted to day-to-day -day functioning. A person with early dementia may not be able to drive across Iowa but may be able to drive down the farm driveway to pick up the mail. They may be able to write out checks on a joint account, but not engage in investment transactions. There is a need for ongoing evaluation, however, as abilities can decline quickly. In surveys of caregivers who struggle with intervening in a loved one's driving, finances, care, it's feelings of guilt and betrayal, grief and coercion that dominate the list of their uncomfortable feelings. I'd like to take a bigger look at safety and risk now, because encouraging safe behaviors is really a key role for primary care providers. Their goal is to prevent bad outcomes to patients and the public. And in dementia care, safety plays a central role in recommendations given to patients and caregivers. You know, families are given home safety checklists. Patients who fall are encouraged to wear some type of lifeline or emergency response system. The advice is usually to err on the side of safety if there's any question. 
And although safety is a very high priority in healthcare, in some situations it may not be as high a priority for patients and family members who may be caught somewhere in between. Because real life is full of risks. There are benefits to doing things that contain risk. Consider a common scenario. The recommendation for someone to leave the farm and move into town or move closer to family when it's apparent the patient has memory problems. Typically, the patient resists. Well, change is hard. It's hard for all of us. And it may be harder for those who have increased difficulty retaining new information or weighing out checks and balances. The patient may not perceive the risks of being out on the farm alone through yet another Iowa winter. Or he or she may say the risk of staying home is far more acceptable than the increased safety but anticipated diminished quality of life of moving into an assisted living facility. Caregivers often get caught in between. There's disagreement in families. Some may see benefits to the patient remaining in familiar surroundings, to maintaining a sense of identity. They know the person always wanted to keep the farm and the family and the cost of assisted living would end that. Those are quality of life decisions in which accepting the risks may outweigh accepting the safer option. And even in an assisted living facility, no one can guarantee the patient won't fall or wander or have some kind of trouble adjusting to the new surroundings. Caregivers typically feel responsible for whatever good or bad outcome results. So healthcare providers may not agree with the decisions made by patients and families, but they do need to acknowledge that many things that provide quality of life carry risk. In sum, safety is not synonymous with well-being. Let's move into a discussion of financial capacity. Becoming financially independent and managing one's money is really a sign of adulthood, at least in the United States. And to question someone's capacity to manage money may be perceived as an affront to dignity and to self-respect. So financial capacity can be defined as the ability to independently manage one's financial affairs in a manage consistent with personal self-interest. Financial matters range from simpler activities such as identifying currency to complex transactions such as completing tax returns or managing investments. Financial management may not be a comfortable topic for patients and clinicians because personal finances are generally regarded as personal and legal matters not something one's healthcare provider needs to know about. Many older adults are reluctant to share financial information with their family. Basic financial management has become increasingly complex with the advent of online transactions and banking. Negotiating security codes, remembering PIN numbers, that can be exasperating for people who are cognitively intact. New procedures for old financial assistance programs can add another obstacle to independent money management for the cognitively impaired. Although the Social Security Administration has said it will not withhold Social Security checks from anyone, it is moving to an all-direct deposit system. No longer the monthly checks to come in the mail. SNAP, or what was formerly known as food stamps, are now debit cards. And these are just some of the basic, simple financial programs. Patients may not be aware that they're having trouble managing their affairs, or they may be overwhelmed. 
They are vulnerable to misunderstanding, to scams, to problem gambling, and to persons who claim to be looking out for their best interests but are not. We do know patients with mild dementia are at increased risk for financial exploitation. So the loss of financial capacity occurs early in the spectrum of Alzheimer's disease, far earlier than the loss of physical function, and it may be the first indication that something is wrong. And things can go much more wrong very fast. In the 1990s, a neuropsychologist at the University of Alabama named Marzen noted that there were really no tools for assessing financial decision-making capacities in persons with cognitive impairment. That was in contrast to the many studies that were coming out offering frameworks for medical decision-making. So he compared the financial abilities of 23 controls, 30 persons diagnosed with mild dementia, and 20 persons diagnosed with moderate Alzheimer's dementia. And he found that even in the mildly demented patients, there were significant challenges with all but the simplest domains of financial management. They could identify and count currency. They could make change from a one-unit transaction. They could detect an obvious scam and explain the components of a check. Beyond that, things started to fall apart. So this small study has face validity. It's not uncommon to hear about financial devastation when in individuals unintentionally make bad decisions. In some cases, caregivers try to intervene, but they're unsuccessful because patients are deemed to still have financial capacity. Or patients might be suspicious towards family members seeking to take over finances and resistant to relinquishing control, preventing family from intervening effectively. There is no real simple formula for measuring financial cognitive impairment. And in 2005, both the American Bar Association and the APA published guidelines for financial managers and lawyers on how to identify and deal with clients with declining abilities. So although the medical field often looks to attorneys and financial planners for help with financial capacity issues, those professionals again look back towards medicine and Part of their guidelines is to encourage clients to see a physician for capacity evaluations in more difficult situations. Something to think about is that regardless of whether patients have considerable or few resources, at the first signs of cognitive decline, they should be advised to get their affairs in order and name a capable and trustworthy proxy decision maker. Should a patient eventually be determined to lack the ability to name a proxy, establishing conservatorship through the court is expensive. It can take months. Just wanted to show this table, which shows that rapid decline Marzen found and others have found in studies of change in financial capacity as dementia progresses. As you can see, there's a pretty sharp decline early on in the disease progression. So, going to a 2009 JAGS article, Marzen described the components of financial capacity evaluations that could be undertaken by primary care providers. The list is here. Although the full interview is likely prohibitive in length in most private office settings, Marzen's framework does have some useful applications. He divides financial skills into the several domains you see and describes tasks required to successfully negotiate each domain. He advises physicians to obtain collateral information from caregivers and lists useful questions to ask patients related to each domain. For example, under the domain cash transactions, one would say, 
please give me the exact amount of money you need to buy this pad of paper. Or under financial judgment, one might ask, how can you be sure the price you were quoted to buy the car is fair? Marzen also suggests probing for financial problems that might be occurring with more general questions, such as who manages your money, your property, do you have investments? Are you having any problems? Is anyone else named on your savings or checking accounts? When's the last time you might have been late paying a bill? Or have you bounced a check recently? Have you received any letters or phone calls from your bank with concerns? Do you think someone has stolen or cheated you out of money? From that financial capacity interview, one can recommend where on that sliding scale of independence and dependence a patient might land. Does a patient answer everything satisfactorily, thereby needing no help? Are there specific domains where he or she requires assistance? Or does this person really need to relinquish financial affairs to someone else? And because taking over financial affairs can be stressful for caregivers and lead to tensions between family members in many situations, sometimes the best solution is to recommend involving financial professionals or a social service agency and remove family from financial involvement. This should also be recommended if there is suspected caregiver impairment. So to summarize that financial capacity assessment, it does take time to evaluate financial capacity and there's no clear cutoff on simple screening tools such as the MMSE or MOCA adequate to the task. Medical conditions affecting cognition such as severe depression, metabolic disorders need to be ruled out or addressed, and patient reports should be combined with family or caregiver reports. In some cases, an occupational therapy or social work referral might be helpful to assess financial skills and the patient's support system and needs and options. Most often, families alone or with the help of an attorney or a banker will work through things. But in some cases, formal neuropsychiatric testing for financial capacity can be very helpful. For example, when there are contentious situations within families, when you see that this could all end up in court, and if you have a concern for financial abuse. Basically, clinicians don't have to be financial advisors, but they should be attentive to warning signs that the patient may have lost some financial capacity. They should know when to complete or refer for an assessment of financial capacity and educate and prepare patients and family members to plan ahead and make modifications. These are my three current favorite financial planning resources to refer families to and patients. We often tell people to get their affairs in order. Well, how does one get affairs in order? The NIA website at the top has some really good general information, including how to know what papers are important to bring into an attorney or to review. They also contains a lot of helpful links to more detailed financial planning information. The Alzheimer's Association site includes recommendations on how families can approach family financial planning discussions. The Legal Hotline for Older Iowans has a 1-800 number. In Des Moines, the number is 515-282-8161. It is a no-cost service for persons 60 or older with questions about various legal matters, including financial planning, and they've been extremely helpful in the past. 
kind of like this car too. Marie, are you still driving? Driving is a complex task. Broad cognitive domains involved in driving include memory, visual, spatial, and processing skills, attention, and executive skills. Patients need to be able to remember and understand signs, directions, plan how to get where they're going and remember where they're headed, and recognize when road conditions are hazardous. The physical tasks of driving include sensory and strength and coordination domains. The key functional aspects of driving is being physically able to react to the actions of others. For many people, driving is an overlearned behavior. They may be able to perform the mechanics of driving, but lack the cognitive ability to be safe on the road. In the United States, a diagnosis of dementia does not mandate license relinquishment, but in many countries, once someone is diagnosed with dementia and intends to continue driving, they must notify authorities. Driving is a sign of independence for many folks in rural areas and practically a necessity. Few people stop driving on their own. But some folks with dementia will begin to self-limit. For example, they may start driving shorter distances. They might stick with familiar roads, avoid difficult turns, particularly to the left, avoid driving at night or in heavy traffic. If family's noticing these kind of changes, it could be a sign the patient is aware, at least at some level, and may be willing to discuss the driving future. With progressive cognitive decline, the question is not if a person needs to give up driving, but when. There are a few studies of driving with dementia, and the results indicate that persons with mild dementia overrate their driving abilities and safety on the road. They indicate that those who self-limit are at a greater risk of accidents, and most accidents do happen close to home. Patients who are impulsive or aggressive drivers are at higher risk for accidents. And methods to enhance driving capabilities of persons with mild dementia have shown no safety benefit. That includes the use of a co-pilot, GPS devices, dementia medications, and retraining courses. There is some correlation between caregiver concerns of driving behavior and accidents. This is a very poignant quote. It comes from a guide that I recommend uh, people either attain online or from the Hartford. It is called At the Crossroads. The quote, our children talk to him about possibly not driving. They don't know it, but he cried that night. Driving is extremely important to him. I don't want to strip him of his dignity. Sums up what we hear in clinic a lot. The quote really captures what the well spouse faces, that dilemma over driving cessation. It's a touchy subject. It's an unpleasant subject. Of course, chief among the clinician concerns are both patient and public safety. But there are downsides to prematurely ending a person's driving, including social isolation, depression, and family discord about what to do and who's responsible to take over to do the driving or to enforce the driving ban and how.
Families and patients may need guidance to plan for driving cessation, or actually now the term is driving retirement. First, if it happens in the clinical office, make an effort to include the patient in the discussion of what to do when he or she can no longer drive. The patient is your focus. Please include that patient in the discussion. And unless the person is unsafe at any speed, look at ways to gradually reduce time behind the wheel and help make that shift from being driver to being passenger. In Iowa, public transit options are limited, especially in rural areas, but every county has some form of paratransit service. Often a driving retirement plan involves identifying asking others to do the driving, family members to pick up the medicine, friends to transport to church, the transit service to transport to the senior center. Sometimes it's not just the patient, but the caregiver who insists the patient should be allowed to drive when driving capacity is in question. The clinician may try an educational approach, describe the complexities of driving, how kind of impairment affects how a person performs behind the wheel, the heightened risk of injury. A good handout can reinforce those key points. Sometimes the reality check of liability and insurance rates can give pause. Something I've seen be effective, although I've never found a study to back this up, is the driving safety checklist. And here is one compiled from At the Crossroads. You can see all the areas that someone can take a look at while they're in the car with a person who is being evaluated. Basically, you provide the caregiver with a list of what to, what to look for, such as the driving behavioral warning signs from the Hartford Insurance Company they put together in collaboration with MIT Age Lab. Encourage the caregiver to go out at least a couple times with the patient to use the list. Now, if the caregiver balks at even getting into the car, your capacity evaluation may pretty much be done. But assuming a caregiver follows through, an isolated check may not mean anything depending on the circumstances and the severity of the item. Checklists can be repeated down the road, so to speak, and may help caregivers see the degree of driving impairment, changes in driving quality and safety, and it may help them feel more comfortable intervening. So the, posi the position statements from neurology and geriatric psychiatry recommend that if a patient with cognitive impairment is cleared to drive, they need to be re-evaluated every 6 to 12 months. That includes the medical assessment, the patient and caregiver interview. A question that many providers find revealing and helpful is, would you let your children ride with this patient? The benefit of global dementia screening is unclear, but there may be a role for trails B and for clock drawing in the clinic settings. Recommendations for patients with mild dementia can go in some different ways. Even if a driving is not contraindicated, the patient should still be advised to begin planning for driving retirement. Providers may recommend the patient no longer drive, explain that physicians do not grant or remove driver's license, but provide a professional opinion on driving capacity. They may consider referral to an occupational therapist certified in driving evaluations to a neuropsychologist for the NAB, which is a battery of pen and paper test that has shown some correlation with driving abilities. Many families express a lot of appreciation for those do not drive prescriptions when they've been able to convince a loved one to stay off the road or when the loved one forgets 
the directive. Referrals may be made to the DOT in cases where physicians believe a patient is a danger on the road and insists upon driving. In Iowa, a physician must inform a patient that they are being reported to the DOT. They must inform the DOT the reason for the report. It can be done in a very simple letter, and there is immunity from liability, civil or criminal, which might otherwise be incurred or imposed as a result of the report. The letter can be very brief, and upon receiving it, the DOT should call the patient in for testing. You identify the patient, where they live, identify yourself as the physician, that there's a cognitive impairment, you advise the person not to drive, and are requesting the person be called in for a written and road test. Moving a little bit into the realm of community resources, it's very complicated. No one would devise the system we have now if they were given the chance to start from scratch. And I think this cartoon captures that. Remind me, which is it we're interested in? Assisted living or assisted suicide? So although informal caregivers provide the majority of dementia care, many people accept services to help a loved one remain in the home a little longer. Resource issues include determining what resources needed, what is available, and what might be acceptable. There are also access issues, particularly around financial ability to pay for services, eligibility requirements, and the advocacy. People often need professionals to help them work through the system. So here is a little guideline for determining what is needed. Does a person need help with ADLs? Typically not earlier on in the dementia course. IADLs, that's usually where we see the first impairments. Managing the finances, taking care of the driving, doing more complex activities. The area of health can include medication management, appointments, getting to rehab. The emotional and spiritual category encompasses mental health services, but also just support and meaningful activities and companionship. Finally, there's a need to look at the need for supervision, for safety at home, or to prevent wandering. There's also a question of whether services need to be hands-on or are there technological options that may be better suited for the patient? So how do you determine what's available? Chances are you're familiar with home-delivered meals in the senior centers, the adult day programs, and nursing agencies in your community. Hopefully you have access to a medical social worker who can help sort through all of this. There is an online tool called the Elder Care Locator that guides users to drill down through state agencies to find information and referral providers for local services. The website's up here. If you just Google Elder Care Locator, it will pop up. Although not as prevalent in Iowa as in more densely populated regions, the specialty of private charity case management is growing. I put the national website link on this slide. They do have a section where you can find local case managers. These case managers tend to be nurses and social workers who've had considerable experience in working with older adults and older adult services. The area agencies on aging also provide some limited case management services, more typically to persons in the Medicaid eligibility demographic, but they will 
often accept other referrals as well. Let's just talk for a bit about technological alternatives to hands-on care. Because when we think about home and community services, we think of more high-touch. And there are some high-tech things out there, some which are fairly routine now. Telemedicine, PERS, personal emergency response systems, automated medication dispensers, reminders. These all may increase safety independence. These technologies are fairly well accepted by patients, maybe accepted a little more by caregivers. Most people do not find them intrusive. They are, in some form, electronic tracking systems. And these technologies may allow persons with early cognitive decline to remain home in an independent setting a little longer. They may relieve family members' worries about their loved one being home alone and falling or mixing up their pills. Other tracking systems, such as baby monitors, are a reapplication of an accepted technology from elsewhere. Recently, I was talking to a patient's daughter who explained that she lived in a zero-lot line next to her parents, and they had some short-term memory loss. A little while ago, her mother tripped over a coffee table and eventually ended up in the emergency room for stitches. Her husband had been beside himself when he heard her fall, and he was really unable to do much. So by setting up the baby monitor, the daughter felt she was able to give her parents space and independence, but also hear if there was a crisis. Now, in this case, the patient and her husband agreed that the pros outweigh the cons of the monitors. They were comfortable giving up some privacy to know that their daughter would be alerted if they needed something immediately. And they were able to really consent to these devices. These are the devices, they've been on the market for a long time, and though not without flaws, they're relatively safe, typically reliable. Some emerging movement tracking technologies they're also marketed as safety devices and respite providers for caregivers and as ways to remain independent to patients. Some of them are coming out of the UK and the EU. They're GPS bracelets. They're tracking devices built into the soles of shoes. There is work being done on implantable chips for dementia patients, so much of those used for pets in this country. There's a way to go on those. There are certainly varying degrees of invasiveness to these technologies. Are they always appropriate? There is a high risk when patients wander, but there's also a risk to safety, to privacy, and a lot of issues around consent when we start talking about things like implantable chips. The other piece with technologies is they don't always work in all locations. Just think about your cell phone. Sometimes there may be lower tech interventions that are effective for the problem being addressed. Perhaps someone who wanders may be well referred to the Safe Return Program for the Alzheimer's Association, for example. Also want to make the note that GPS and tracking devices have not been shown to be effective for improving safety on the road. Medication management technologies, you know, again, if you look at the advertisements, they're focused on preservation of independence, improved safety and compliance. And quite frankly, people without dementia are challenged by complex regimens. We have many studies showing that, particularly if there's multiple time of day dosing. So many persons with early cognitive decline can follow their old medication regime, but they're thrown off by medication change 
or buy the different shape or color of pills when pharmacies substitute a different generic. There are potential downsides and risks to these dispensers. For example, they need to be filled properly, they're limited in size by how much they can contain, and many have time frames so that if a patient's gone when the medication is dispensed, that medication may no longer be accessible to the patient. Balancing those out, um, this is a technical option that allows arguably patients to be a little more independent with a low likelihood of harm regarding medication management. Costs typically are a couple hundred dollars for a device. Some can be rented for upwards of $50 a month. So yeah, things have their price tag. Those technological devices are usually purchased privately, but there are actually some state and veterans programs that will cover certain monitoring devices. To find out about eligibility for financial and service assistance, there is a website called Benefits Checkup. If you put that into your search engine, you will come to a fairly complicated site which asks a lot of questions about who the person is, their age, their social security number, their work history, are they veterans? And then they suggest programs which that person might be eligible. It is very complex, probably not something to refer early um, cognitively kind patients to, but something caregivers might be able to negotiate. The VA also has a lot of good web-based information, although certainly for people with cognitive decline, it might just be a lot easier to send them to their local Veterans Affairs office to help them get started. Iowa Department of Human Services site has uh, links to where to go to in the community to find out about services. And then particularly for older adults, we look at Medicaid programs, including the Elder Waiver. Waivers are designed to help low-income Iowans who would require nursing home level of care access funding and services to maintain them in their homes. Most patients and families rely predominantly on informal help and some balance of private pay and government agency assistance. They really put together packages. Most older adults do not have long-term care insurance, but it's something we should always ask about. In the past, persons who develop dementia could be excluded from using long-term care policy benefits, but that is now illegal. So, a lot of pieces here. How do we get patients and families to come to agreement? First, I think it's important to start with a patient and ask what the patient thinks. Do they think they need help? What do they need help with? Involve caregivers in the discussion the patient needs and also ascertain if the caregiver needs help. Something that can save a lot of time is to check that the caregiver who's bringing the patient into clinic actually is in a position to make changes because sometimes the person who holds the decision-making authority or the most sway over a loved one is not present. A review of the five categories discussed earlier should cover most basic patient care needs. It's probably unrealistic not to expect reluctance on the part of a patient to accept help. And we should probably expect some reluctance on caregivers' parts as well. Try to find out what is behind that. You might see a burned out spousing in a chair, and that spouse may be refusing help because of how she understands her marriage vows. She might be feeling guilty about allowing any outside care, that no one can provide care as well as she does, or that by accepting help it shows that she's not able to do her duty. Now, if a patient is getting good care from this caregiver, 
you might want to back off a little bit and provide education, provide support, but take up that conversation at the next appointment. If the patient isn't getting needs met, you might need to prioritize recommendation for services to kind of ramp up the, the urgency. Certainly utilize staff support and educational materials. Summarize the plan and arrange a follow-up, either in the clinic or over the phone, to see how things are going. Did you call Meals on Wheels to get them delivered, for example? Just because people left with a brochure doesn't mean anything's going to happen. So what can physicians do to support patients and enhance caregiver education? This is a list of things that was generated from a caregiver support group a while back. Caregivers really appreciate regular patient follow-up, as do patients. They want you to communicate medical information to them clearly and make sure you understand the recommendations. Caregivers find it very helpful to be told what is it that's important to watch out for. What constitutes an emergency? And how do they get a hold of you or your backup? Another role for the clinician is to assist caregivers in anticipating changes in patients' function and behavior and care needs. Finally, families don't always recognize when things aren't working. Clinicians may need to be clear when a care plan isn't working and when a patient may need more help even placement in a facility. Supporting family caregivers is key. They're dealing with the most difficult aspects of early dementia. They're dealing with, often, family disagreement. It can be a challenge to get everyone on the same page with the diagnosis. They're dealing with the changes in a loved one and the ripple effects through the family roles, dynamics, relationships, emotions, financial implications, substitute decision-making, getting by day-to-day, -day, planning for the future. Kind of overwhelming when you put it all together. And they're also coming to terms with the fact that this is a progressive condition, and as much as everyone wants that demented patient to become their former self, it's everyone else around that person that's going to need to change. That includes changes in communication, adapting to difficult behaviors, safety concerns, activities, social lives, everything you need to do to maximize independence for that person with demanding illness. So acknowledging that is key. And there are basically three basic components to supporting caregivers in the clinical setting. It's encouraging caregiver self-care. It's finding an opportunity to say, you are doing a good job with a really difficult situation. And it's letting caregivers know that you and your staff are available and you'll refer them to community supports and resource experts to augment your assistance and the assistance that they can provide. I kind of like to summarize this discussion of caregiver, patient, balance, clinician, balance by going back to that bioethical context we talked about at the beginning in balancing independence and dependence. First, looking at respect for patient autonomy. Patient relationships in the outpatient triad involve providing information as early as possible so that cognitively impaired patients can make long-term care plans and get their legal, financial, and family affairs in order. Helping people plan for potential incapacity is a way 
to respect patient autonomy. As patients and families struggle to adjust to the change of early dementia, the clinician ideally counsels patient safety, but respects allowable risks consistent with what the patient has valued. Efforts should be made to ensure patients accept long-term care plans early on, or if significant changes are required in the patient's life right away, to make sure that those changes occur in the least restrictive way. The clinician is also key to determining when patients can no longer act independently as pertains to specific decisions or functions, and they can assist proxies in assuming their role. So this leads us into that increasingly directive approach clinicians often take with persons losing cognitive and functional capacity. Patients and caregivers may need increased guidance navigating the complex health and human services systems and balancing the benefits and burdens of care options and interventions. The principle of justice may be met in maintained ways or at higher levels. Clinicians essentially advocate for patients when they facilitate referrals to services, when they send letters of recommendations or appeal to help patients overcome barriers to receiving support and community assistance. They're advocating when they educate others to improve patient care and reduce the stigma of dementia. At a higher level, supporting local, national policies that benefit patients is another piece of justice in dementia patient care. I hope you found something useful to apply to your practice from this session. Thank you for listening. <laughs>